Welcome to episode 215 of Control the Controllables. And I hope you're well wherever you are in the world. And you've got over another fantastic Australian Open that has whetted all of our appetites as we're moving into 2024 and all of the excitement that we have coming our way on the tennis tour. Now, before I jump into today's episode, I just want to take the opportunity to to mention that over the last six months, we've been working alongside a fantastic placement student, Fergus, who he's our first podcast placement student here at Control the Controllables. And it's something that we have done over the last few years working with Bath University and then we in England. And we've opened that up to many of the UK universities, whether that's in operations, marketing, strength and conditioning. And it's just been a program that has worked so well for ourselves, but more importantly, for the individual that has come to work at the Soto Tennis Academy. And as I'm sure Fergus will absolutely testify, it's been a brilliant first six months for him. And we are already opening up the space for next year. So starting September 2024. And if you know anybody that's interested, then reach out to us. We, in our show notes, we will have all of our details. It is perfect for someone that has a gap year as part of their course or for someone that's finished their university course and they're looking to get into the field of podcasting or media and we would love to have you come along. So anybody that is listening to this right now, please think of someone and share it far and wide. But back to today's episode and As I said at the start, the Australian Open, what a brilliant two weeks or three weeks when you take the qualifying event as well. I was very fortunate to be out in Melbourne throughout the course of the event. Uh, Gabby Dabrowski and Aaron Routliff, the players that I coached, they fell short in the semi-finals of the women's doubles. We didn't quite have the same story that we had at the US Open, but still it was a brilliant experience, a brilliant effort by them. And so many incredible matches that were played. We then have Yannick Sinner sitting at the top and Arena Sabalenka winning her second Australian Open. And then so many more winners in the doubles, the mixed doubles, the wheelchair events, the juniors. And a big well done to everybody that was a part of such a fantastic event. Now, given the time differences and the way the tennis world works, some of our usual panellists were unable to jump on. Gabby Dabrowski, as I mentioned, she's still out in Australia before she moves into the Middle East for the next part of the year and the timings just meant it was the middle of the night for her and then Emily Webley-Smith she just returned back from the USA so it is a little bit male dominant in terms of our panellists so I do apologise for that but they are brilliant as always Freddie Nielsen he's out in Mexico and he was he's preparing the Danish team for the next Davis Cup tie out there in Mexico and then Calvin Betton who joined us before for the for the preview of the Australian Open the coach of Henry Patton Calvin brings incredible insight and and also honesty and and I love the conversation with them we delve into lots of topics Australian Open yes related but also some bigger tennis topics 
You'll be holding your breath at some point when you hear, if you haven't heard already, that some of the plans that are currently being concocted behind the scenes in the world of tennis. I bet you want to find out. So here it is, our Australian Open 2024 panellists. So our Australian Open review panellists, a big welcome. How are you doing? Thank you. Great. And we've got we've got the boys, huh? Boys, boys, boys. Tonight we couldn't get Gabby Dabrowski. She might join us. She might jump on later to give us a little 10 minutes. Um, but it's we've got Calvin Betton and Freddie Nielsen. And I'm trying to give my most enthusiastic voice. It's after just arriving back from Australia a few hours ago. It's like 6 a.m. for me uh, right now. The eyes are closing a little bit. So, so boys, you mm -hmm. might you might have to jump in. And and Freddie, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and start straight away on. I guess it's a hot topic in the world of tennis. It's scheduling. You know, we talk about it all the time. It feels like it's maybe overdone, but I I think it'd be wrong of us not to pick up on it. And despite the fact that Australian Open did extend to 15 days, out of those 15 days, there was actually only two days that they finished tennis before midnight. Uh, we had the famous 3.39 a.m. finish. I know there was many others that were around 1 a.m. Um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite seem right. We've got something that we've got to get right in our sport, surely. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this because I was always of the opinion that my experience with all the players is that they they want more money and that's basically all they want with the sport and if this is what it takes then that's what they have to deal with but uh, yeah i don't know how it makes more money to play these matches at night and and i don't know what the ratings is but but i agree with you you have to set some sort of of limit and there's also a I don't know a, a bit of FOMO to it. You have to squeeze everything in on the on the bigger courts and stuff. And you you have so many good courts, you can spread it out. You can see more matches on the smaller courts and and all this. But I I agree with you. I I'm, I think it's pretty pointless when you're playing sports at four in the morning. What we know about the body to the recovery and then the next few days are completely done. I mean, if you have a tournament like Acapulco where all the matches start at midnight or whatever it is, and you can have some sort of consistency, okay. But when you have such big swings and when you can play as an Australian Open, I definitely think, okay, we got to do something about it. And, and do people win? Uh, are the players, you know, getting the, the benefit from it with the, with the players? take a little bit of a hit in prize money if it means having more solid scheduling. Would there even be a hit in prize money? I don't know. But I agree. I've changed my stance a little bit on it. I think you should just take responsibility on behalf of the players to to make make it easy on their bodies and more and, and, and increase the longevity because all over sport it seems like it's just putting more and more strain on players' bodies and, and their their physical health and maybe even mental health. So this is one place where I think it's an easy place to start. But I think if we, even on that though, if we're talking about, we're talking about the auto coming from the player's perspective. Yep, absolutely. You know, potentially it cost Medvedev the title, potentially. You know, he was a one that certainly had, had some late finishes. He definitely didn't quite look full of beans towards the end of that final yesterday. But we're talking about having eyeballs on, on our sport. 
eyeballs are fast asleep in bed at that time. The but not everywhere time. around the world, though. No, not everywhere around the world. But I, let's take I had the I had the fortune. They what I don't know what they what they wanted. A, maybe a bit of a Geordie Geordie voice on the BBC. There, there's not many of them flying around. But to to do a little bit of uh, BBC Five Live commentary, and I did the Krychikova Hunter match, and Storm Hunter was the first time a qualifier from Australia had made the third round of the Australian Open in 39 years on Rod Laver it finished at like 1.10am and I honestly the first set was watched by no more than half of a stadium the second set was watched by no more than a quarter and the third set was watched by who knows a tenth or a twelfth of the, of the stadium mm-hmm. you know like that 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 was a big match for for Australia. That was a big match for Storm Hunter. That was a potentially quite a big storyline. She came within one or two points of winning that match, and and I tend to think if she had a little bit more of the crowd behind her, she might have got through that match. Um, but yeah, that that for me that night I thought, well, this is this is wrong. It, this has to be wrong. If this match doesn't have a full stadium, you know, and I kept on saying on commentary, are you telling me there's a hotter ticket in town right now? But it wasn't about the hot ticket. It was about it was about the time. Um, I don't know what your take on this is, Carl. I mean, I think various things. I mean, witnessed it firsthand when I was there. I mean, my first position on it is that if you're going to start the night session at 7 p.m. and you're going to have one best of three set match and one best of five set match, in whichever order you're going to do it, unless both of those matches get through pretty quick, you're probably going to finish at a time that is beyond logical for a tennis match to finish. Because let's say you go the best of, let's say the best of three match goes first and it goes, let's say seven, six, six, four, which I would say is average. You're probably looking at 9.30, before you get the second match starting. So, or before you get in them on court. So you're looking at 10 o'clock there. And that's if it's straight sets, pretty average. So even then, you're probably looking at a one o'clock finish, one o'clock, one thirty finish. If the next match is straight sets ish, so it's not conducive. So that's the problem with that. Or you can do it the other way, which is the way the French do it, where it's just one match. The night session is just one match, but then you run the risk of what happens if one match is six two six one. And people have paid their night session and they get one match of tennis that lasts about 52 minutes. So there's no real way of doing it other than you start the night session early, but then it's not really a night session. So I think it's one of these, I, I don't think it'll ever really get solved because we want the slams want to do night sessions. There's two ways of doing it. You can either do one match or you can do two matches. And there's massive drawbacks in either of them. So I don't really see how you can get around it. And I don't think that the ad in the extra day made any difference, which I never thought it would anyway, because it only really changed the schedule for the first two days. We had two, the first two days now took place over three days, but once you got to the Wednesday, then everything was on the exact same schedule as it was on the year before and every other year since. Yeah, and if, if you, if you, if you schedule the same amount of matches on the center court, it doesn't make a difference if it's one or two days more, right? No. And also, while we're on schedule, I'll say this, although it's not particularly about the, the night mm-hmm. sessions finishing, we've had a lot of talk. I mean, I mean, I came on one of your podcasts earlier in the year, Kino, where um, last year, sorry, we talked about doubles and the importance of doubles 
in the schedule and the importance of doubles in general. Now, I went in, Henry and, and Francisco lost, um, they lost on what, the Friday. So I went in on the Saturday just to watch a bit of tennis. So that was the seventh day. And at 12.30, half past midday on the seventh day of the tournament, there were only three senior matches going on. And one of them was a doubles. This is why you need doubles in a tournament because there's no tennis to watch. If you in the slams, once you get past the first two rounds of the singles and you're spreading them over that many days, there's simply no tennis to watch that. So every court except for the first, except for three courts, was junior junior matches. So I think that raises that issue about how important doubles is because without doubles, you'd have even less tennis going on by that stage. What I did think the Aussies did, and one of the benefits of that situation, which I just mentioned, is that, and what the Australian Open does very well, is that it means that all the matches are basically getting watched by big crowds by that stage. So you're getting to, there's four court, there's four stadium courts really, isn't there? And a couple more that are not far off that. And you're basically getting by, by the, by the time you get to the third round of singles, second round of doubles, it means that the stadiums are full on every one which I, I did think was quite good. But the scheduling, I, I don't think we're going to get around while we're going to have, I don't think we're going to find a way to get around it while we're having night matches. I mean, one of the days, I forget which day it was, but it was on Margaret Court, I think, where there was two hours, there was just two hours dead time with nothing on it on Margaret Court before the night session started. And then I think the night session ended up going till about quarter two well, in that, the morning. That, that was the one that they, they offered Sabalenka and her opponent to move courts, which obviously caused caused a problem then for a quality of of who was going on on which court, and you know obviously probably rightly so. I think Sabalenka turned around and said, "Well, why don't you put?" I think it was the Rublev Dimanua match, maybe. Why don't you mm -hmm. put that match on 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 Margaret Court? You know, so that I think there's always going to be those things. The the other thing that we had this time, Freddie. Um, I was thinking, oh my, it felt like it French Open last year, it felt like, poor, there's a lot of five set matches, but it kind of really seemed to go down uh going into going into the into the second week, where as the Australian Open this time, it actually equaled the 1983 US Open of, and had 35 five set matches, um, including a record-breaking 20 first round five set matches. Um, and of those 35, uh, five of those matches, actually a player won the first two sets then ended up losing in five sets, you know, and obviously it brings up, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've talked about a lot is get rid of the five setters. It's not, it's not conducive to, to the way that tennis is going. Uh, obviously it then fits into what we're talking about with the scheduling about fitting in those those two night matches, but I quite liked what Mark Petrie said on 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 Twitter. He he talked, and I'm a one of this as well. I I like to see the five sets. I think it brings the drama, and I also like that we can then compare through the ages. You know, on, on people playing the same scoring system. But he suggests that maybe they they change when the ball is out of play. So he's saying if the if it's zero to four shots, you have 15 seconds. Five to eight, 25, nine plus, you have 35 seconds. But then rather than sitting down at change of ends, 
you have 60 seconds to make your way down to the other end. So I guess in summary, Freddie, what he's saying is let's get the ball in play more. Let's take away the the, the players that are strategically using the shot clock and, and, and all of that dead time. What, what do you think of that? I think it's a decent enough argument. Well, you used to remember looking back at the the old days with, with the great matches with Sampras and Agassi and whatnot, and they barely used the towel and they just went side to side. There was almost not enough time to, to watch the replays between the points, and now you can have it from 18 different angles. However, the counter-argument to that would be that they're then able to compete at a higher level now, and uh, and the quality of the matches that you do watch will get better. And that uh, leads to the question, are we trying to get the matches done or are we trying to get the matches done as in as high quality as possible? Uh, I think there's something to be uh, to be done in the with the with the shot clock situation. I think that could be something to be played with. But uh, yeah, I don't know if it would make that much of a difference, but maybe it would be. Um, I think that the five set matches should be here to stay and if we can find a solution to make that happen and and what you said there is a pretty decent solution uh, i'm pretty boring with these kind of things because i'm always pro no change but but if if it makes it better then okay but i do think it's vital that the grand slams are best of five sets because it will ensure that in more cases than not that the better player will win and i think it would uh, it would change history a lot if you all of a sudden had slam winners best of three set, sets I think if you compare slam winners to Masters 1000 winners, it's vastly different. And I think it's vital for the slams that they are the most difficult to win and the best players will win them. So I don't think that that should ever be touched with. We Well, we know that statistically matches are getting longer. You know, that's that's yeah. been, that's been proven. And I think it was Medvedev, he, was, he played over 24 hours of tennis on this occasion, which is a, he, he joked in his press conference, at least I'm breaking some records, you know, and that was the <laughs> record that he's bro- broken. I think it was 24 hours and 17 minutes or whatever it was. Now, the time before that, the record was Carlos Alcaraz in the 2022 US Open and that he played for a total of 23 hours and 39 minutes. So it's it's been, you know, very much proven that the the matches are getting longer. Is it because the rallies are getting longer? I'm not sure statistically they are. When you yeah, well, I, I was going to say that. I think this, I think there's something to that with the surface and the balls, and it's more tough on the body. Whereas back in the days, it was a little bit faster, especially at uh, at, at US Open, Wimbledon, and uh, and Australian Open. So it's also tougher. So in in that sense, instead of changing the scoring system, maybe they should make some of the slams faster so it's not as tough for the body. Um, some, something like that because every the tennis is the same everywhere now. All the slams, you can play the same tennis, you can hit the same way, you, you the, the balls are heavier, there's not really the the serve and done. You know, I'm, I'm almost expecting a, a big rally, every big point and Maybe that's a place to start by by playing around with the conditions more than than the actual the time in between or something like that. And Calv, I'm not sure. I'm not sure some of the Brits would want a different condition or longer matches because I know when I turned up and I I walked in to Melbourne Park, literally I'd been in two minutes and I looked up on the screen and there was Ryan Peniston, the the British lad playing in the first round of qualifying. 
and uh, he was serving, I believe, serving at 9-4 up in the third set tiebreak, super tiebreak at 6-all, and he was having full body cramps. Um, now, he kind of heroically found a kind of slash forehand at 9-7 to get over the line against Imar. But then we also had Fran Jones, who had fall of up in the third set, had full body cramps at 4-all. I mean, it was quite difficult seeing her, the way it coming off the court. She was in a lot of pain. And then we had Jack Draper, who famously almost went massively viral, more so than anything else at the Aussie Open, because he almost puked in the face of his opponent as he was shaking hands at the end of his five-set match. He just managed to get the handshake and then make his way to the to the bin. Uh, the conditions were pretty tough, certainly on those first few days. And it seemed like the Brits, it seemed to be happening to the Brits more than anybody else. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know whether it, whether it did or whether we just pay more attention to the Brits. Um, I mean, it's such a strange situation with in Melbourne with, with the climate because we really experienced all sorts of different stuff. And I was only there for a week. Like we had some of the hottest temperatures that I've ever been in. We had a day where it rained all day when, when my lads were playing. Right. And then we had a few days where it wasn't particularly warm at all. It was basically like a, a moderate British spring day, really. So it, I think it's just difficult to to plan for that. I mean, body cramps is just a weird one because I, I know both, I know Penno and I know Fran really well. And I know that they, they don't have any issues with fitness um, for, off, off the bat. I think they're both very fit individuals who work hard. So... I don't really see what else you can do on that. I assume that they're both very professional and they take on their hydration and that kind of thing. So I think it's just one of those. I mean, I've seen it. I, I was in Thailand the week before and Lucas Pui was in the final in that tournament. He cleaned everyone out the whole week, destroyed everybody, got to 3-2 up in the final and had a full body cramp. That's, that was at 3-2. So, you know, you know what, what I'm not, there's no way that he, I think, I don't think he'd lost more than about four games in a set all week. So it wasn't, it wasn't a physical issue for him. And then at three, two in a final, he's just full body cramped, had to pull out of the final. So, you know, I, I, I think it's just one of those things that comes and there's no accounting for it, isn't it? But I do think going back to the actual lengths of matches, I, I, I entirely agree that, 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 that a lot of this has to go on balls and surface that we've that we've slowed the game down so much a few years ago but also the players don't help themselves on this because i do think i'm not entirely sure about this idea of reducing the amount of time between points because i watched a bit of the ultimate tennis showdown where i think it was i don't know how many seconds it was but the whole thing was just too rushed like you couldn't settle into the point and it's all right in the early stages of tournaments when you know, there might be the odd rally that, and early on in the match where it's, you know, players are taking a bit long. But like yesterday, for example, in the final, as a viewer, you want the match to marinate in the in between the points. You know, when it's getting when, when the drama hypes up and that kind of thing, you don't want the one point to finish and then be straight into the next point. You want to know what's going on. You want the, you want the commentators to talk a little bit, find out what happened in the point. You that that's the viewing experience of it. As if a you're tennis just purist. As a tennis purist, yeah, yeah, but I think it's like it's 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 like in any sport, you know. And, and look, football—the ball's in play. I think on average now, fifty-five minutes out of ninety. 
you know, you watch cricket, there's about a minute and a half between balls sometimes. You have to have some dead time. I don't know how you manage that because some dead time is good, I think, and some isn't. I do think I don't want to get rid of best of five. It will happen. I'm sure of it. They'll get rid of it because the way that it's moving, everything is pointing to the players wanting to play less tennis all the time. And it's sooner or later, they'll decide why are we doing best of five? We can get the same amount of money with best of three. And then once it's that, we'll be down into third set uh, champions tiebreaks. I don't agree with it. I wish this generation of players weren't like that, but they are. They'll figure out we can get the same amount of money for less work. The one thing I will say with, 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 with regards to changes, get rid of toilet breaks or at least you pay a point to take a toilet break and no injury types allowed. There's also, I know that studies have shown that as soon as there's an injury time, viewership just goes down because they don't want to sit around and wait for that. I mean, there's that. I, I agree, Freddie, again. And it's again, that's on the players because we know that players take players. are. I, I'm going to say now that 80% of injury timeouts are nothing to do with injuries. Players are taking them when they know that they're not injured. They're doing it is purely as a gamesmanship issue. And I, I've seen it happen. There are some times where... And toilet you know, breaks. Where, where, and toilet breaks, 100%. And toilet yeah. breaks. Yeah, 100%. But again, I, I think that has to go on the players. The players have to take responsibility for this. They know they're doing it. Happens all the time. You know it's coming all the time. And to be honest, as coaches, we probably advise it as well. You know, if, if one of your players Absolutely. is losing, we're going to go like, why don't you go to the toilet? Like, call it, call a timeout or that kind of thing. It's It's just... It's just one of those things. And I think that's why you got to legislate against it because players can't be trusted because you would take advantage of those loopholes in the rules. And like with the injury time thing, I mean, if, like you said, it's a gamesmanship and I would like to see a percentage of how many injury times are taken for players that are behind on the score. That's probably a majority. And if you have an, a, a really important injury, I mean, assessment plus three minutes is not going to make a difference. Uh, and if you had something that needed quick fixing, then you do it in the changeover or you get a time violation as much time as it would take because if you really needed it. And I think the one time a year where somebody would really not uh, be hurt by that rule is, is of course, uh, unfortunate. But right now, it's, it's just being taken advantage of and nobody wants to see it. It takes a long time, especially if you have to leave the court for an injury time. And yeah, I know also uh, they, Clara Towson played as a rank and she was also making her weight and taking toilet breaks conveniently. And it's like, okay, take a toilet break, but you pay a point for something and you start love 15 next game. Let's see how many toilet breaks you'll have to actually take. I think it's the same as that as well. I mean, the, the time violation rule is just borderline pointless. It only makes mm. sense. Is what, why are we not just going if you get a time, if you, if you don't meet the shot clock, you lose your first serve anyway. Why do you get a warning? And then you lose a first serve the next time. It should be straightforward. If you miss the first one, you get you lose your first serve. If you miss another one, you lose the point. That's 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 the that's the way to deal with it. Why do they need a warning first? And also that it's counterproductive, particularly in Djokovic is remarkable at this how he gets away with it so often. He doesn't meet the shot clock, so he'll go he'll go over it. He'll get the t he'll get the warning, and then he'll spend a minute arguing with the umpire about him getting a warning. And it, it's pretty straightforward. It's like you've got 25 seconds or 20 seconds. If you don't, if you're not ready to play, you get a warning. So he'll, he'll not be ready to play after 20 seconds. The umpire will give him a warning and then he'll argue with the umpire. 
So it slows the game. And he gets, so he then basically gets about a minute and a half in between. And again, that's where players are not helping themselves. They're not helping the product. And it, it, it's an apt time for me to, and I tell you what, it, it's hurting me bringing this up now because I'm desperate to get into the dark horse picks because I've, <laughs> I've, got the, I've got the graph in front of me here. And it just, it makes beautiful reading for, for myself. You know, that when we're we're competitors and we're we're trying to, you know, we're trying to outdo each other. But I, I will wait because it is the apt time to to move into what we're talking about, the game changing, the you know, the the content that's out there, the way that players' demands are, and 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 the hot topic or one of the hot topics that came through in Australia. And I'm not gonna go into into big names on this, but I I did hear and had quite a few conversations with people that were heavily involved in, in this talk. And there's, there's big talk coming out of Australia that the grand slams have all come together, uh, motivated by what happened at Wimbledon 18 months ago, where Wimbledon decided that there wasn't going to be any Russians playing at Wimbledon, the ATP and WTA responded by taking away the ATP WTA points. And I think at that point, the Grand Slams kind of little bit of ego thought, well, hold on a minute. We're not being controlled here by the ATP and WTA. We're the big dogs in this world. We're the ones that are that are demanding the big fees from TV. We're the ones that are bringing in all of these people too. I think it was 1.1 million people that were at the Australian Open. We talked previously how many people were at US Open. Wimbledon is Wimbledon. And obviously the French Open as well, well spectated as well. So they've all come together. And I believe quite heavily led by Craig Tiley at the Australian Open and then Stacey at the US Open. Um, and, and they are looking very strongly to form a new tour which will be called some premier tour where they're going to have the four grand slams. They're going to have 13, 1000 events and it will be 96 players. bit like in golf, you qualify for the, for the tour of the top 96 men and women qualify and they then play in those events. So they're playing less events than they normally do. The prize money will be raised. They will have big partners uh, but what it does mean if this goes through is anyone outside of 96, what happens to you? And not so good for myself and Calvin, what also happens to doubles? Because they have been very clear that doubles will not be part of this tour and players outside of the top 96 will not be part of this tour. This has been floated with the players. It's been floated with the ATP who are absolutely dead against it. Uh, I heard that they would just that's if the ATP don't come on board, we'll just slowly but surely push them out, as is the words that I'm hearing. The WTA is slightly more open to it, is what I'm hearing, but there could be a big, big sea change coming very soon, as soon as 2025 in the world of tennis. Freddie Nielsen, what do you think? Well, I'm not surprised that you say something like this. I'm kind of waiting in a bit frightened about what the changes that are going to happen uh, for, for, for my sport. Um, 
I, I, like I said, like you also mentioned, the food chain. How is this going to be? The 96, are you qualified for a year? How do you get up? How do you go down? What does that mean? You know, tennis is such a global sport that if you only have, what, 17, did you say 13,000? And and then uh, the four grand slams. The, the slams. Is, is, is that, the word I'm hearing. Yeah, so... <laughs> What countries are gonna get that right? What tennis is gonna play it in the other countries that can't that can't get this stuff? And how are you gonna get tennis out to the other uh, to the other spectators and fans and the the, the fans everywhere? And what how what's the criteria for getting these thousands? Probably gonna be money. Some places are gonna be able to pay more than others. And is it gonna be better in the long run? Oh, there's so many thoughts to it. I don't really know what to say, but until I get a full grasp of the whole food chain if there's a viable food food chain for the youngsters up until the tour and and there's a like i think that's the one thing tennis has right now it's got a pretty good way to 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 move up the move up the ranks and go from from pretty low level to high level pretty quickly but like this it seems very exclusive and i'm i'm not particularly fan of that i don't mind the changes as such if 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 the, if it has like I said, if it's coherent, but I'm also a little bit scared of what it actually means. Like, is tennis better off with with just being top heavy? I'm not so sure. I don't know. And also, is it for the right reasons? Is it for the betterment of the sport or the, or the game? Is it to make it more attractive? Or is it to, again, what's the equation here? Is it to make tennis more, uh, get it out to more people or spread it out and grow the game so they can get more people to play and be inspired to play and have some role models or is it to make money for a few and, and, and use that top top heavy to, to make money for yourself or I don't really know what it is. You kind of surprised me a little bit with it here to, that, that it's so far down the line but I'm a little bit worried. I don't think that it's necessary for the best of reasons and I'm always... I'm also a little bit different because I'm not particularly pro more money. I would happily take less money if it means that the, the sport is going to be better. I think at the end of the day, why do we do sports? I think that's the big question. Why do we have all these things? It's so that people like to watch it and so that people can spend their time or doing sports and get inspired and stay healthy and they they can uh, have something to do and there's something for the youth to do with their spare time and all this and this and I think the most important question is, is this going to help this or is it going to make it worse? And yeah, well, I'm think, not really sure I, it's for the right reasons. I, I think the spin, the spin on it, again, just picking up, picking up from some conversations, is that below that, they're going to encourage more localized tours. So the European tour, the Asian tour, the North American tour, the South American tour, and, and on almost kind of throwing it to them, that this is an opportunity for you to make local stars, for you to inspire within your region, for you to be able to really commercialize and develop your own tour. That's going to be the spin, I think. However, and that sounds okay, but who's who's going to be in charge of that? Well, exactly, and the, and and the, and the thing about it is, however, that doesn't get away from the fact that there's some people at the top that have the power and the Grand Slams have the power within our sport right now because that is where that is where the demand is. The demand is at the Grand Slam, at the Grand Slam level. That is our highest, most sought after 
uh, a piece of content that we put out there and is making the most money. So, so they they see this as a way, I guess, of grabbing a hold of the sport, creating a legacy. Is that a selfish legacy? Is that a legacy for the sport? I, I we don't know. We we don't know how this is gonna this is gonna turn out. But from from what I'm hearing, it's like they feel that the time is now for this to happen. And that was one busy boardroom in Australia with a, with a lot of people going back and forth. And and I, and I know that what the hot topic was was a, was about this too. Cal, what's your thoughts? I I think it's absolutely abhorrent. If I'm honest, my my thoughts are the same as when football announced that they were going to have the Super League because it's exactly the same type of thing, and. You come down to the fact that sport is our last remaining meritocracy that we have in society. And if you don't have, if you take the meritocracy out of it, you no longer have a viable sport. And the Super League was the same. There was no relegation. The play, the teams were selected at the start. They couldn't get relegated. They were just going to hoover up all the money in football. And this is exactly the same thing. And I spoke with three or four players about, in Australia, I spoke with three or four players who I consider to be friends um about both this situation and about the Saudi Arabia situation and what disappointed me with every single one of them is they just don't care about the future of the game they've got this weird idea in their head that they're not getting paid enough money now let me just put that out there I don't know if, if how many people know this but if you're in the top 96 already even if you just play the four slams which people don't do and even if you don't win a tennis match you've already got about 240 grand in your bank before you start. Then you've got all the master series, all the other tournaments that you're going to collect. So try telling me that those people don't earn enough money that I, I, I just think it's abhorrent that they're going to come out and go, we need to be paid more money. Yannick Sinner had a great couple of weeks. Does he need to be paid more money than what did he get about two and a half, three million quid for two weeks? Like, does he need more than that? Because apparently that's what they're saying. They need more money than that. What will happen here is the food chain will break down. I'll say you'll get about six or seven years out of this, and then it'll completely break down because you've cut it off at the bottom. And all that's going to happen is you're going to have those 96. IMG will already have too much influence in tennis. They'll stick a few of their wild cards in, that kind of thing. They'll get some of their juniors. They'll select it. It won't be done on a meritocracy. It will be done on who is signed to IMG. There'll be no one else. That's the way that most of the wild cards already work. Who's with IMG? They'll get the wild cards. And then the guys who are ranked good players who are coming through, guys who are ranked 150, 130, they're just not going to get a sniff. They're just going to be cut out of it because some guy who's ranked 89, who's barely winning any tennis matches, is just hoovering up all the money. I, I think it's absolutely abhorrent. And if it, tennis needs to stop, the, the, the guys who are a bit rank, ranked a bit below that and the doubles guys in particular, they need to start waking up and stop sleepwalking into this situation. And the doubles guys, I was sp speaking to a few of them over the last couple of weeks, and I like all these guys, but they're a bit, they're a bit asleep on it how quickly this is moving away from them. And they've just had the, the council selections for who's going to be on the councils and that disappointed me in itself. I don't want to name names or that kind of thing. But all I kept hearing was, oh, yeah, yeah, we went for him. He's a nice guy. Not because he thought this is a terrier who's going to fight our corner. But, yeah, we'll just vote for the nice guys who are going to go in. And they're just going to get bullied in there. 
doubles will lose out and it'll be down to the players sleepwalking into it. The guys who are ranked a little bit lower, it'll lose out because they've been a little bit slow out of the blocks on it. Make no mistake. I said, I don't know if I said it on your podcast the other week here. You know, the PTPA, this has been their aim. Their, their, their sole aim has been more money at the top of the game. All the stuff about cheaper flights and a hotel accommodation and all that kind of stuff, it was all a cover-up. At the start, it was always to get more money for the top 20 players in the world. That's what it was always, and, and now we're seeing the fruition of it. Yeah, people are uneasy about this. You know, people are uneasy about this. People are uneasy about what the what the true reasons are <laughs> behind it. But as we know, when 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 anything comes to the forefront like this, it it is ultimately money, and and someone is mm. is looking to someone is looking to line their pockets, and I think that's the. And like, uh, if I can just interrupt, if I can interrupt, sorry, like Calvin said, it's money right now. Yes. Like, people can't really see what's going to happen in 20, 30 years. They don't give a shit. It's just what can benefit me right here, right now. That just is the summary for me, because I, I think we can talk about this for hours. And I'm I'm conscious that Freddie doesn't have long. We haven't actually talked about about the about the Aussie Open winners yet and, the, and, and, and what's happened with the players. But ultimately, this is this is not thinking of the longevity of the sport and and the the ecosystem of the sport, which yes, with there's players, but there is, a, and we 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 talked about the scheduling at the Australian Open. The thing that hit me at the Australian Open, yes, it's the players finishing at that time, but the journalists that are that are finishing at that time the whole time, the the racket stringers, the physios, the the workers, the, the obviously the coaches, the psychologists, the fitness coaches. There's a big ecosystem that that makes our sport go round and it's a fantastic industry in, in many, many ways. And and we need to also fight for that from from all levels. You know, we don't want this to become this completely it's, it's also like it's it's also sorry Keno, sorry for interrupting, but like it's it's like in the slams, like I just raised the point there. If you're not going to have doubles in all this, right? What? How are you filling those grounds after the after the Thursday of the tournament? Who's going to watch? What what are people going to watch in that time? And you're hoping to still sell tickets for two weeks? There's nothing to watch. And also, like all this stuff about they're gonna they're gonna push this. I know what you know what they're gonna say because there's gonna be less tournaments. They're gonna push it. We're we're trying to preserve our bodies. It's player well being and that kind of thing. Which is the biggest load of tripe, right? Because they say that there's no clubs, there's no uh, close season in tennis, right? There is a close season in tennis, about three or four weeks. It's not much, but it's three or four weeks, right? What happens as soon as the close season starts with the top 20, 30 players in the world? They go, they the go off and they do money. <laughs> they go off and they do ultimate tennis showdown. They go off and they do exhibitions in Mexico and Colombia and Saudi Arabia. They go off and play that World Tennis League thing. That's what they do. I think I think I saw something that Holger Rune didn't have any close season, didn't have a preseason this season. He went, he played right through. He played World Tour Finals. Don't know whether he played Davis Cup, but then he went straight and played. Um, something else, and then he played Ultimate Tennis Showdown, and then he headed to Australia, where I think there was a week, and then he started first tournament, of the, first tournament of the year. Don't don't start talking about player well-being and, and players looking after their bodies. They'll do whatever they want to do for some money, and that's that's the disappointing thing. 
Australian Open. It, it, we we need to let's let's watch this space. Boys, we'll we'll jump back on when we get any more information. I think it's it's an important topic, obviously, in in the world of tennis. And I guess it's a little bit watch this space. So we, we'll jump back on that. But Australian Open, and and I, I just wanna I wanna start with the uh, the underdog stories. We had Yastremska, who was the first qualifier since Emma Raducanu to reach the semi-finals of a Grand Slam. Emily Webley-Smith, a big shout out to her. I know she hasn't been on this Australian Open edition, but she's been telling us about Noskova for a good while. And, and Noskova defeated Iga Sviontek on the way to the quarterfinals. Um, we had Nuno Borges. I want to mention him, the first Portuguese player to reach the fourth round of a slam. And also then Sunit Nagel from India reaching the third round of a slam. But, Freddie, the time has come to talk about the dark horses. Chris O'Connell, not a bad shout by you. He managed to get a set off Ben Shelton in the second round of the men's event. And, and Calvin, your your pick, Jack Draper, managed to, to win a match, just puked in a bin and then lost in the second round. Um, Gabby picked Grigor Dimitrov. Not sure that was a dark horse, but he still lost in the third round. And my true dark horse... Uh, Kekmanovic went all the way to the fourth round as only a true dark horse can do. Freddie, you want to you want to comment at this point, or do you want me to move on to the women's singles? Like I told you off off air, you're better than that, Dan. Stop claiming little wins. Like a dark horses quarterfinal, not fourth round. <laughs> Having said that, you obviously did better than me. I had a horrible event this year. I have to look myself in the mirror. I have to uh, really go into training, make myself better before the French Open because, yeah, I like my pick with Chris O'Connell, but let's be honest, I didn't have a didn't have a great, great pre pre tournament pot this time. So yeah, got to look inwards and do better next time. Well, on the on the women's side, you uh, didn't do so well again. Um, you you tend to stick no. to your fellow country. People in your in your picks. So Clara Towson went out in the second round. Gabby also stuck with her fellow countrywoman in Leila Fernandez, who went out in the second round. Calv jumped on the, the dark horse that we all know is not really is not really a dark horse, you know, in Mira Andriva, who we all we all knew was gonna go a long way, went to the fourth round. And then I my two Hang on, Dan, horses. Dan, are you are you claiming that he didn't pick a dark horse, but you picked the real one? Well, Is that the narrative you're trying to build up for to protect yourself? <laughs> oh my goodness. Is this what it's called fallen to this podcast? And then well, my two my two women actually, one was was Marta Kostchuk, who who went to the quarterfinals. So I will take that. So that was a good call. That's your criteria, Freddie. And then um, I thought her name was. Oh, it's Zeng. your criteria. <laughs> I thought I thought her name was Zeng. I was calling her Zeng, but Young, who went all the way. My dark horse went all the way to the final, and lost mm. to Sabalenka. So now's the time. If you want to give any credit, lads, you, you can. If not, we can move on to the winners. I will say, for give you credit, it shows that the tactics of picking 45 players does pay off from time to time. So well done. No, you obviously did better. And I, I fully admit that there's a little bit of heart to my predictions. But when it comes to Clara, uh, like uh, I, I alluded to it in the preview also, 
there's so many floaters in women's tennis that have won a slam or been high ranked. Like the other dark horse, Leila Fernandez, a Grand Slam finalist, is a dark horse. Come on. So I'm just waiting for Clara to make that breakthrough. I think she has the game. So, so, so it's half brains and half heart when I pick her, to be honest, because I know that it's going to come. And I do think it's very difficult to pick dark horses on the women's tour. I mean, you, you are sitting there. You, I've never seen you so happy basking in the glory of picking young, as you say it's pronounced. And she was number 13 in the world. <laughs> hey, to, to make the final as number 13 seed, as someone who's never been past, I believe, the fourth round. In what, a... what was the highest ranked player she beat to make the final? You can only play who's in front of your car. Come on, don't. don't... <laughs> <laughs> so, didn't she? Was it that she didn't beat a player inside the top sixty? Was that, that right? All I know is she made the final. You know, so <laughs> you know, you can, you, the, we know that these draws. We, we know that these draws open, but now we all need to hang our heads in shame because we I think. Were... Sorry, Kina. Sorry, can I just come in there? I think in general, just just a quick comment on the women's draw. I thought it was a pretty poor women's tournament. To be fair, I think that you know, it's, I agree. I was, tr- I was trying to think of like, and women's tennis needs a bit of a leg up. You know, I think the a couple of years ago it looked like they had like seven or eight absolute stars who were going to take this forward, and it just hasn't panned out. And if, if in anything in sport, if you want to get viewership, you need rivalries, and it's proven research has proven that you need repeat winners, somebody whose dom- dominant force has actually helped. Um, viewership in sports and it's just not happening at the minute with the women's draws like this was probably the least compelling major that I can remember in terms of no offense to Sabalenka but I think you know I think she's pretty sort of faceless winner on it to be honest and didn't really have any really good matches they had one memorable match that I think was Rybakina against right. was it Blinkover? Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah. Blinking, it's over. Yeah, yeah, and and that to be fair, the drama was high. I don't know if the tennis was that great in it before the tiebreak, and I I thought yeah, I thought you know it we ten, women's tennis really needs a, to start having a good slam where the big players, the superstars of the game, play each other all the way to, towards the end. They can't just be keep having these type of tournaments, which it is doing too much at the minute. And I, think that's I agree good. with that. And I think it's also what you were alluding to, to our picks, that just, I was so disappointed with Rybakina. I thought she was going, she had a big game. She seems to have a good mentality. She's going to be up there for a while, but I've picked her a few times now and it's always been a little bit, eh. so I agree with you. I don't, I, I hear people talk about how, oh, it's interesting that, people beat each other from then and then. But in my view, it's like, yeah, it's nice that there's an upset from time to time. But the way I see it, it shows lack of quality at the top. And I don't like that. I like quality at the top. I don't need necessarily two people to win everything and, and all this, but that the top needs to be be solid and have a have consistent good quality. And it proves that the, the, the level is high. And, and it's... Yeah, I agree with you, Cal. I don't think it was there this time around, and I think it's there needs to be a little more consistency to to make it captivating. Is is that not the best of three sets, though? We talk about, 
you know, on the men's side, the, the Masters 1000s have very different Be Before you compare. get into that, let me just say, there's always been, there's always been best of three sets. And the people have, the players have dominated in best of three sets. You obviously can't win every time, but you have a consistent set of winners or girls that went deep throughout time, whether it's uh, Steffi Graf or uh, was it Hingis, Cabriati, uh, Serena, Venus, whatever. There's There's been a solid set of, of good players, but we, we've talked about it a few times before. There's a lot of one-time winners and like people are beating each other from all over the place and like it's always been best of three sets. So what's what's the difference now then? then? Yeah, and I, th I think, you know, it's, it's, we go back to the 90s. And some I, I raised this point the other day that I said I thought it was the least compelling female slam that we've ever seen. And Simon Briggs, um, journalist of The Telegraph, said to me, well, you know, Steffi won a lot of pretty dull ones. But the difference was it was Steffi. She was a megastar, absolute megastar, so, and a dominant force. So you could go, well, at least at the end of it, you have this. No offense to Sabalenka. But she's not that level of megastar, and she's basically, and it's, it's no real criticism of her. She's cruised through the tournament because everyone else dropped out. But it happens too many times. Like Svontek's won a couple of those where just everybody else has dropped out. Did she like, cruise the, the, past golf? Did she cruise past? I know it's on our, it on, on our yeah. WhatsApp group. I know Freddie said that she was going to smoke golf, but. Well, she, she basically did, apart from that she had like a. 15 minute period where she lost her head a bit and started spraying the ball everywhere but she was 5-2 up in the first set 5-2 up double break in the first set and then she just started spraying the ball for 15 minutes then Goff had a set point and then lost that and then it was and then she just basically smoked her again but I think that for about 75% of that match Sabalenka was by far the better player The, the point about Steffi yeah Obviously, back then, the women's tennis wasn't as competitive, and it's much more con competitive now. But it was also very competitive in Serena's era. And it seemed to be a lot of the same people that went, players that went deep. So I think you can have both, for sure. Did we, did we, yeah. see, it, did we see enough of Naomi Osaka to, to think that she can get back to the top of the game over the next, over the next 12 months? Um, probably not. Mm. No. I mean, I think she will oh. get back to the top of the game, but I don't know if we saw anything there. I mean, it was a pretty, pretty rough draw. Although I think we all thought that she'd beat Garcia, didn't we? But um, it was a pretty, you know, a pretty rough draw. But then she's not seeded, so she's gonna get, you know, she's she's gonna have to get through a couple of decent players to get back to get on a run again. Which I think, you know, the main thing with with Osaka is how often she's gonna play. I think that's the thing, and whether we're going to see enough of her. She's she's obviously got a child now. I don't know whether she's going to do a full schedule, but that's another problem that we, that we we get in the women's game that the the best players just don't play very often. And you know, it's good to see some people. Out. It's good to see Anisimova back, who I think is potentially a star. But she just take she just took a break before that. But we didn't see a whole lot of anybody in the draw other than Sabalenka and Goff. Kind of played all right, I suppose. And and I know he didn't play the Australian Open, but Mr. Nadal did did come to Australia, played played three matches, Freddie in in Brisbane. The same question to you: Did we see enough of Rafa to suggest that he's going to give us a, a or go out on a on a high note in twenty twenty four? Pretty encouraged by his level. I think he showed that. On the other hand, will he last physically? Maybe he's. His body, which has always been pretty remarkable, coming back from injury and winning big tournaments right off the bat, maybe it's finally just 
broken down and it can't last anymore. I think that's the big question mark. Level-wise, yes, he will be competitive. Will he endure? I'm not so sure, but maybe it'll be better for him to get on the clay. Maybe that's a little more easy on his body. But level-wise, I was very encouraged. I think he will be competitive whenever he plays and stays fit. And Yannick Sinner. Lots of people outside of us called Yannick Sinner as as someone who was going to win the 2024 Australian Open. I, I don't think we quite saw it. We, we, we thought maybe over five sets he would struggle, but Novak Djokovic didn't even have a break point against him in, in, in four sets. That's three times that he's now lost to him out, out the last four in the last couple of months. It's it's the most that we've seen over the last few years uh, or the biggest indication that there is some form of changing of the guard. I would say very impressive by him. Very impressed. Mentally goes about it the right way. He makes very good changes to his game technically. <clears throat> I wasn't the biggest fan of his. I thought it was too much one way. But I've come around to it now. I think he's very good and impressive. And yeah, I I liked everything I saw from him. I like his attitude. I liked his quote about his parents after the match. Uh, I, it makes me. I'm. I, I like that we have a guy like that in world tennis to uh, to to take over the mantle. I think he's easy to root for. He has a good team behind him. Love his game. It's very aggressive. Obviously, he just smacks the ball. It's fun to watch. I think it's, it's... aggressive, but he's solid huh? as well. It's not flashy. It doesn't feel. Flashy. Yeah, it used to be a little bit too much, but it seems a little more solid. So, yeah, very impressed by him. I didn't think he was going to be this good this early, but obviously, yes. Guys, that was my last point. I have to step in in Davis Cup doubles practice now. Good luck out there in Mexico. Feel free to talk shit about me and my picks. That's okay. It's it's uh, warranted. We will as soon as you leave. <laughs> Good. Take care. Bye, Cal. See you later, mate. But yeah, Cal, Freddie mentioned it there, the the Yannick Sinner, the Yannick Sinner comment. And I thought it was for him to have his head screwed on after winning his first Grand Slam. And obviously he spoke and did, you know, as a lot of these players, they, they don't give you a lot, do they? They they say the, the thanks to the right people. But I think to use that platform, what he said was, I wish everyone could have had my parents they never put pressure on myself and i wish this freedom was possible for as many young kids as possible and he's made a pretty i think he was actually just being very kind to his parents there but that's uh that's a quote that's being used at academies and tennis clubs and tennis coaches around the world this morning yeah i think so i think one of the things that i found most interesting about sinner particularly i guess in the last the back end of last year and, the, and now is how he's developing quite a funny personality as well. Like, you know, we're seeing a little bit more of him. He's a little bit dry and he's done, a, I think he's done a few modeling shoots as well. I saw a couple of the guys taking the mick out of him a little bit at the World Tour Finals. I think he's done a Gucci shoot or something. And he's. I've seen him making these like little comments where he's quite a funny guy. And it was always leveled at him that he had no personality before that. But I think we're seeing that that's definitely not the case. He, he actually has got a personality. He's not he's not Nick Kyrgios. He's not um, Tanisai Kokonakis or or anyone like that. But he is quite funny, I think. And I think he's and, and quite. He, he just seems like a normal guy, doesn't he? Like the comment about his parents was quite funny. And I don't know if he was actually trying to be funny with that, or or he was. But it was you know he was basically pretty straightforward about it. But I think what's interesting, what one of the, and I've I've found this quite interesting for a while that 
you might know some some different keynote because you're I guess you're closer to that that world than I am. But we've always sort of said that you know parents like to say how you don't have to be a a top junior to be um you know or all, all the best juniors don't become the best um seniors. But then there's that that sort of truism that all the best seniors are also very good juniors. Sinner might just be the player with the biggest differential now between his senior career and his junior career. Cause he no. was, he was not a great junior. Like he was, you know, I'm saying he wasn't terrible. I think he was right about one fifty, something like that. But all the other players who've won slams, there's never been a world number one. I don't think who wasn't a very, very good junior. Like I know it was always leveled at Samfras. People always used to say, Oh, Samfras wasn't a great junior. I think he was like eight in the world as yeah. juniors or something like that. But but this one is this is the first time I can think where somebody has and and there's been the guys who haven't played a lot of juniors like Nadal Alcaraz didn't really play much juniors that kind of thing but this is Sinner who played a lot of junior tournaments and wasn't great as a junior and now he's a Grand Slam winner there's a good likelihood he makes world number one this year as well yeah and I think I think it's a really interesting point on on Sinner because. What you're saying there, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing someone that's really growing into his own skin and his own body. You know, it's it's coming out more and more in what he's doing. And I think that's a lot about the team that's around him. I think I think he's he's a great role model for that. Like, just keep getting better. Keep working. Keep working at your game. And you can feel it, you know. And I, I've mentioned it a few times on this podcast before. I remember seeing him in Tunisia. I'm not sure if you were there, but he, he played Luke. He played Luke Johnson first first round, and then I wasn't. I wasn't there. Luke was five two up in the third against. Well, I was, and I scouted it because he then Evan was playing the winner, and and then Evan then beat him in the next round. And I've talked about it before, but it was literally two weeks later that he went on his run where he started winning challengers and qualifying for ATP events. You know, it wasn't two, three, four years later. But the one thing that stuck out to me, those practice courts in Tunisia that kind of people are hustling to get on and you see some of these kind of 30-minute NAF warm-ups, he was putting it in. You could feel it. You could feel he was he was proper. He was, he was real. You know, he was, he, was, he was there. And I even get that sense after he won yesterday. It wasn't like this... My career is done. I've won a Grand Slam. You know, like it was almost just like, okay, that's what's going to happen in my career. And yep, now that now there's more. And and I have a little inkling that we've talked about Alcaraz for a couple of years now, as the as the as the one. And Alcaraz and fair play, obviously Alcaraz has won his couple of Grand Slams. But I have a little feeling over the next two or three years that we might be seeing more of Yannick Sinner than we will of Carlos Alcaraz. I, I think they'll both be in it. I think we're going to see a, a rivalry there. Um, I, I really do. And I think what you're getting with both of them, I think what's going to be interesting now, and, and this is not me closing the book on his career by any stretch, but what's going to be interesting now is what happens with Djokovic. Because you've now got like a couple of guys who don't have the scar tissue of being beaten relentlessly by him. Like your sort of sitsy pass of this world yeah. team, those guys who, you know, it's like they've beaten him, but he's just beaten them too many times in big matches. Whereas now I think even though 
with Sinner, even though he's beat him three out of the last four, even before that, he was all he was on top of him a few times. He was two sets to love up, up on him at Wimbledon a couple of years ago, and basically experience just let him down on that front. But now he's like he he doesn't look like the other day. He didn't look at all bothered about Djokovic. He lost, and bear in mind that he had match point in the set in the third set, lost it. And a lot of those guys, I've, I've seen City pass similar situations, would just have lost the next two sets, six yeah, two, yeah, six two. Sure. Whereas Sinner was like he, he has this sort of way about him that he carries himself like, okay, that's how that set finished. We'll just bring my game again, and it's either going to be good enough or it's not going to be good enough. And yeah. I'm not going to overstress about it either way. And that's what happened, and it was good enough. And Calva, I just want to finish with doubles. You know, it's a, it's a world that we that we live in. And Rohan Bopana, uh, 12, 12 days older than myself, and I'm pretty old. You know, like I'm like, this body feels pretty old, you know, and to be swinging that racket as he's swinging that racket, not only did he become world number one after he went through to the semifinals, the oldest ever world number one, uh, but he then went on to win his first ever Grand Slam, age 43, 44 in March uh, with his partner, Matt Ebden, uh, thought it was very interesting when we got down to the, and this doesn't happen, this doesn't happen very often on the side of of men's doubles. There was actually six singles players in the semifinals as well, going up against the, the doubles pair that was left. And uh, what an incredible achievement. I believe it was his 61st ever Grand Slam and the first time that he came out as a winner and uh, a bit of an inspirational story for us all, really. Oh, it's a great story, isn't it? It's, it's it's fantastic to see it, and he's been close a few times as well. I think he lost final of Wimbledon and U.S. Open last week. He beat beat Henry and Julian at U.S. Open seven six in the third. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a hell of a story. Uh, one thing I'm interested in, Kino, and your listeners might be interested in it as well, because you've known uh, Bob for for years. He's kind of like now he has this very unique style how he plays now. He's like kind of accepted, right? I'm going to serve flat and hard. He's, I'm going to stand at the back and I'm going to hit the ball flat and hard. And then, you know, I'm going to roll the dice on it. Is that kind of all the way he's always played or has he, has he adapted that um, over the years? No, he's always been that type of player, you know, right. without, without a question. You know, he was... It was actually, I, because he, and I, I told this story a little bit this last week. It was actually my last ever, I then looked it up. My t last ever two singles matches. I played two singles matches and two challenges. One in Uzbekistan and one in Manchester. You know, I was playing double. So it was my last ever two singles matches. Were against Rohan Bapana. And I lost in three sets in both. And... But in Manchester, myself and David Sherwood, we we beat Rohan and his partner Koreshi at the time, who went on to be, I think, 2010, maybe French Open or US Open finalists. And I remember thinking about Bob's. He's not that great at doubles, is he? He doesn't he doesn't come forward, you know, like we were because we were of that of that era. Yeah. Of like you have if you don't serve volley, you're a bit of a you're a bit of a weirdo. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't be yeah. any, you just can't be any good at doubles if you don't serve and volley. That was kind of what we what we knew. And you you knew he was dangerous because he served big and he hit big. 
but you also knew that he wasn't necessarily someone who had the best first volley or, or, or necessarily was the best volleyer. But that was like that was nineteen years ago. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, like, yeah. And and yeah. and 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 how? And, and that's the thing for me that's just so impressive that he's that he's still playing the game of tennis. You yeah, know yeah. that he's that he's yeah. that he's still playing the game of tennis. But then the fact that he's obviously overcome various demons along the way of wanting to wanted to give up. And he and, and as a partnership, they they look like they're gonna keep rolling, you know. I, I see I see no reason why that can't continue for for another couple of years as well. Yeah, I mean it's funny because when 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 Henry I told this story a couple of times, I might have even told you it last week in Australia, but when Henry and Jules played them in the US Open, we spoke to a few of the doubles guys um, who'd play them, you know, what, what, what they're like, what, what happens. And everyone had said the same and people who I respect hugely in terms of, from a scouting point of view, everyone had gone like, you know, but Matt's, Matt's a great returner and quite active at the net. Um, but Bob hits big, but as the match gets tight, he, he starts getting more passive and he starts making a few more first serves safer takes a bit of pace off goes body a little bit more ground strokes he gets a bit safer so the the lads are playing them in the in the Aussie uh, US Open and it gets to six all in the third tie break and I say to Baz right I reckon we've got me because Bob's going to get a bit tight and in the 10 point tie break he hit four aces and four clean winners so that's um that was that scouting out the window well my my scouting report from Bob's over the last 12 months is get ready, get ready for the winners in the in the big moments. I think he's, yeah. I think he's massively produced. And again, I had a little joke with him actually, in in the in the gym after one of his matches. I said, I I'm pleased that we I got to see your your clean your clean winning backhand return down the line that that you do in every single tiebreak that I ever watch. You know, and he had like a little smile. But it, that's the shot that I kind of that resonates with me when I think of Bops over the last 12, 18 months playing tie breaks, you know, and people seem to keep giving him that backhand and he takes it early and he hits it pretty clean and it's it's going to take a good volleyer to stop it going past them down the line. I think as well, you know, we a lot of the talk, quite rightfully, has been on has been on Bop, but Matt Ebden is a hell of a doubles player. Yes, and this yeah. is his second Grand Slam, and I think it's a it's a great sort of complement to how Bapana plays, how Matt plays. He's very he doesn't serve volley either. He tends to serve and stay back a lot, which is weird because when he played singles, he used to serve and volley quite a lot. But in in doubles, he, he definitely serve and volley serve and stays back a lot more. But he's very very active at the net. He's a bit of a pest at the net when 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 Bob's at the back. He's he's ta- he's he's pressuring with territory and also taking quite a lot of risks. Um, and I think that allows Bob, who's obviously at his age, I mean, he, he moves better than I do at, at that age, but you don't move as well as you do anymore. So it's basically going to, he's going to serve and he's going to stand in the same position pretty much. Whereas Matt is going to move, he's going to do all the moving and that kind of thing on yeah. it. And I, I think, you know, it's, he, he deserves a hell of a lot of credit as well because, you know, they are a partnership. And and that doesn't it also just show Cal though the the complementary nature of of a doubles team you know you can hundred percent I always think of uh, Lampard and Gerrard when we talk about this you know playing the you know these two great midfielders but actually as a partnership in the midfield they maybe didn't work and and it's the same on on the, on the doubles court you know and having the the right complementary 
personality and game style next to you makes makes a hell of a difference. And when you do get that spark and that connection, and and that moves me to the last one that I just want to mention, and is Sue Wei, who who came away as the mixed doubles champion, but also. I believe it was her first ever mixed title, actually, but it was her seventh women's title and second with Elise Mertens. And again, one for the oldies. She's 38, going on 39 this year. Um, anyone that's ever seen her play, it's kind of ridiculous how she plays, you know, and what and what she does with with the ball. These players are, are showing, showing us that uh, age is just a number, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, I don't know whether it's as much in the women's doubles because I don't work in it, but men's doubles is, you know, although it's it's an odd, you know, Bob is is the oldest of the lot, but there's other guys like Jean-Julien Roger still playing at the top of the game. He's, what, is he same age, Kino? Or? He's 42, he's a year younger. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think, I don't think there's anybody in the top 10 at the minute. I think Neil might be the youngest in the top 10. Neil or Joe's the youngest, and I think they're 34. There's a long career in doubles, and... Yeah, it's it's well. Um, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's there certain people who are trying to prevent that being the case. Um, but as as we as we discussed, but yeah, I mean, I don't know as well. I think I don't know if it's the same on the the the, the women's doubles, Kino. But the men's, like as you, as you pointed out, there are a lot of singles players um, in the semi-finals, and the last two winners of the Aussie Open actually have been all singles players. Last year was Hishkata and Kubler, and the year before that, Kyrgios and Kokinakis. And then this year, you had a lot of singles guys coming through. And even the finalists, like Vavasori, is a very good singles player. Um, he's still very much singles and doubles. I, I wonder why that is in Australia, and I think the only thing I can think is it has to be to do with the balls and the conditions, that there's a lot more baseline doubles going on um, there. I, and I know I... that now... In the men's game, it's fifty-five percent of the game serve and stay back, but it's definitely more of a singles game. Doubles out there. Yeah, I spoke to Gabby about this, so unfortunately, Gabby couldn't join us. But obviously, Gabby and Aaron had another great run to the to the semi-finals, and they they lost to Kitchenock and Ostapenko in the semis. Obviously, Ostapenko, a big single, one of the best singles players in the world right now. I think in the women's doubles, you. Aaron and Gabby won the US Open. That was the first time a doubles-only team had won a Grand Slam out of 92 attempts. So the last 23 wow. years, there's always been at least one top 100 singles player on the women's. So somebody told me, no, no, you can't do it with a doubles pair. You know, So that was quite satisfying in, in New York when we when we heard that. But I do think even more so in Australia, and the feedback that Gabby gave was very much it was much harder to to cross and take the ball on because the balls are traveling through the air so fast especially when they're new um yeah. and 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 i think that probably favored the big hitters from from the baseline i watched the joe salisbury and rajiv ram i think that was what a third round matchup maybe yeah i watched that one as Machak well and zhang and they just ground stroke them off the court, you yeah, know, yeah. which which yeah. you which you don't see happen happen so much. So there's definitely something there the with the environment. Um but yeah, but well done, well done to all the winners. It's been a it's been another fantastic Grand Slam. So Cal, thank you for joining us. And uh I know Freddie had to leave us early, but it's it's always good to catch up 
and we've got lots to look forward to. Eh? We've got the, the, the next events are already starting. And then before you know it, we'll be, uh, it'll be clear court season again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how many people are going to be over the moon about that. I'm hoping to get a bit more hard court tennis in before that. But um... Not from our part of the world, maybe, in the, in, yeah, in yeah. the, UK, in, in, in the UK. True, but true. Th thanks for joining me, Calvin, and, 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 all, and all the best to you guys over the next few weeks. And a big shout out as well to your player, Luke Johnson, who's broken into the top 100 ATP doubles for the first time. Luke, if you're listening, a big well done, mate, from everyone. We might, hey, now you're top 100, we might have to get you on to control the controllables as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he would. <laughs> Cheers, Calv. Take care, mate. Cheers, mate. So there you have it. We talk tennis. We could have talked for hours, as always. I'm sure some of you are surprised to hear the news that we did share, and some of you might have already felt that this was where tennis is going next. Let's see. I, for one, hope that we don't push through with this exclusivity. I, I don't believe that that is the way forward. Maybe that's a selfish reason I'm working in the double space right now, but I certainly believe that there's a space in tennis for us to have doubles players, to have singles players, to have many, many, many different aspects of the sport that we have showcased across control the controllables, whether that's neurodiversity, whether that's wheelchair tennis. There's so many ways that we can enjoy this sport and we need to continue pushing all aspects of the sport forward and opening up more and more opportunities for everybody. So let's see, let's watch this space over the next few months. And as for the Australian Open, it was a pleasure. It really was to be involved as a coach, as as a commentator, as a, as a tennis fan, as someone who is incredibly enthusiastic about the sport. I just loved every minute of it. The drama that it brought us. It brought us 35 five-set matches. It brought us the Blinkova, Rebecca and a tiebreak, the 22-20, and it brought us so much more, and we have lots to look forward to throughout 2024, and the same with Control the Controllables, we have lots more coming your way, next week we have Olivia Nichols, who is a British tennis player, she's been top 100 in the world for a few years on the doubles tour, Olivia was put forward by Alfie Hewitt, Alfie Hewitt went to school with Olivia and what a, what a proud school in Norfolk that that must be to be celebrating the successes of Alfie and Olivia and maybe we'll try and get Olivia to share some Alfie Hewitt stories with us as well as tell us about her amazing tennis journey that is only just started you know Olivia anyone that's seen her play she is one hell of a tennis player and she has a bright bright future ahead but until next time i'm dan kiernan and we are control the controllables